Welcome to the CSIS Cogit Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Will Colson. In this episode, we dig into China's technology innovation efforts. In the United States and Europe, consumers, listeners like you and I, benefit from China's contributions to technology in ways that you may not realize. While your smartphone may be branded Apple or Samsung, there's a strong chance your phone's components were assembled in China. Today, China's accrued knowledge in modern manufacturing and assembly is off the charts. But if 30 years ago you visited areas like the Pearl River Delta north of Hong Kong, you'd be hard-pressed to believe that it would eventually represent an innovative hub nearly on par with Silicon Valley. Rapid growth, Chinese entrepreneurial spirit, low labor cost, and in some cases, significant government assistance has all changed the technology landscape. While China's leaders in the Chinese Communist Party have taken steps to propel consistent economic growth both to benefit the Chinese people and to ensure the party's legitimacy, Chinese businesses have not been resting on their laurels and instead have started to move up the ladder in high technology sectors. You may be familiar with Huawei and Lenovo, Chinese companies that make smartphones and computers sold around the globe. Yet there are many Chinese companies you probably haven't heard of, investing millions of dollars in research and development to break into markets and capture genuine innovations in the technology space, everything from microwaves to supercomputers. What does this mean for the future of the tech products we all buy and use? How should Western economies respond? To learn more about China's efforts to innovate in technology, Dr. Scott Kennedy, director of the Project on Chinese Business and Political Economy at CSIS, sat down with China tech sector expert Alberto Moel, a senior research analyst at Sanford C. Bernstein, a premier investment research firm based in Hong Kong. I'll turn it over to Scott now. Okay, this is Scott Kennedy uh, from CSIS, and I'm joined by Alberto Moel. Alberto, if you just begin by telling us your name and the organization you're with. Yeah, I'm Alberto Moel. I work at Sanford C. Bernstein out of Hong Kong. Well, thanks for being with us today. Maybe you could just give us a little bit of your background. Obviously, you've engaged with Chinese technology a long time. What's the sort of story that you like to tell about your time working on China? Well, I've spent uh, pretty much most of my career as a technologist in, in Asia, in Japan, and in Hong Kong, and in China. And I spend a lot of time in the ground. And uh, I would say that the, the, the most interesting bit of, of, of China is going up into the Pearl River Delta and basically seeing for miles and miles where you are, basically factories and development centers and people running around making things. I mean, the place is definitely not just the factory of the world, it's also the development center of the world. And uh, just that that scale and and, and the, the the hive of activity that it, that happens there is very impressive. Uh, that my favorite photograph is one of a, the Hong Kong skyline next to the Shenzhen skyline at night. And one's a harbor, one's a river, but they look the same. Well, it's not always been that way, right? When you probably first arrived in in, in Asia and China, you know, a couple decades ago, it looked a little bit different. What what is 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 this about entrepreneurial spirit of the Chinese? rising to the surface, globalization, is it about Beijing or is it about Beijing being far away? Shenzhen obviously is not as, is about as far away as you can get from the capital. What's the story of, of the rise of, of the Pearl River Delta? I mean, there's actually a whole bunch of initial conditions, right? There's, there's policy and politics, the, the Deng's Southern Tour in 1982. I mean, first time I went to, to the Guangzhou was 1985. And it was basically dust, dirt, 
rice paddies and, and oxen carts. That's what it was. And obviously that there's been a there was a big focus on that. But it bootstrapped itself. I mean, it wasn't just it wasn't forced upon. I mean people were primed to become capitalists in that way. And that's one bit. The other bit is that it, it coincided with the with the technology evolution, with how with the with the miniaturization of, of computing to to small form factors, to laptops, desktops, and now smartphones. And these guys happen to be just at the right place and time to create the infrastructure to become the, the, the workshop of the world for that. And it's just a so it's initial set initial conditions that were primed the right way and it all just evolved. Just like Silicon Valley evolved over decades into what it is now. The the parallel delta evolved into the workshop of the world in, in its own initial conditions, and that's where it is. Let me turn to one specific sector, the uh, uh, smartphones. And because I was just shocked several weeks ago when I was looking at the Wall Street Journal, and anyone can be shocked looking at that paper every once in a while, but I was shocked at a particular article that showed market share, I think it was either China or globally, and there were these two new Chinese companies that I had never, ever heard of, I think Oppo and Vivo which I think are connected. I don't know if they're part of Bubu Gao or not, or, or the, the some business relationship with them. But in any case, there were these two new Chinese brands I had never heard of in this industry that had jumped up in terms of market share. What is, what is the story of, of, of the rise of Chinese branded uh, cell phones? And is that a model for what's going on in other sectors? Uh, the smartphone business in China, we, we like to call it at, at our firm the food fight. And it's basically unstable equilibrium of competition that started back in five, six years ago with ZTE and Huawei, which were basically forward integrating from telecom equipment to smartphones. Huawei has been for many years a provider of white goods smartphones to like Vodafone and Orange and other carriers. So they've done that for many years. They went branded, right? So they went branded. So ZTE and Huawei. Then out of nowhere, Lenovo decided to get into the handset business, and they, they actually bootstrapped and built an organic presence and became the number three player for a while, for, believe it or not. Then Xiaomi popped up with a new business model that basically, basically blew things up. And then these other players came out, uh, Oppo and Vivo came out of effectively, quote-unquote, nowhere, but they were basically riding that cost curve. They are riding the, the penchant of Chinese consumers to, to upgrade to the next big thing for $10 less. So they just kept doing that, and they had a good execution, good process. And now we're, I wouldn't say entering an endgame, we're in a better equilibrium where the top five players in China are in no particular Samsung, Apple, Huawei, Oppo, and Vivo. And that's probably not going to change. Those numbers are going to stabilize, and you'll see exit, you'll see concentration. And so it's basically hyper-competitiveness and the belief that they could grow, that these uh, Lenovo thought they could make it. They didn't. Uh, Xiaomi thought they could make it. They're not going to make it. uh, in, in, in that way. Oppo and Vivo have come out with a good enough low, mar- low, low ASP uh, product that people are attracted to. It's, it's cheap. It works pretty well. And so they found that niche, and, and they may keep it for us all, for us, for as far as I can tell. Uh, the founder of Apple, Steve Jobs, a book came out about him a few years ago. There have probably been many as well as shows. And when that book came out, uh, there was a discussion in China Where's our Steve Jobs? Why don't we have more revolutionary innovators like him? Is, is that a fair comparison or a fair example for wondering about innovation in China? Or do we, are there lots of them, uh, of people just like him who we just don't know? I mean, Steve Jobs is one of a kind, not just in the U.S., globally, right? I mean, so, uh, and, and you look at China's entrepreneurial ecosystem. 
there's lots of little Steve Jobs, and even some of them are actually close to Steve Jobs, I mean, like a Jack Ma. You have to give him credit for what he's done. Uh, and there's many others that have come and gone. And uh, uh, in, in technology, the founders of, of, of the well-known Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent are all native entrepreneurs. But there's many different levels of entrepreneurship. You will find at smaller sizes or in, in niches, you'll find people that are, that are quite capable, quite competent, just like you would expect to do elsewhere. Uh, they are in the right place uh, physically. They're in the right time. And they have the ability to, to monetize that, that drive and, 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 and create these small, medium, or very large companies that, that happen to fit into the ecosystem where, where they're, they're just going in there and finding that opportunity and taking advantage of it. So very entrepreneurial overall. When I travel to China, uh, one of the questions that I love to ask is, what's your favorite Chinese company? Um, what's your favorite Chinese company? Uh, <laughs> good question. I... Uh, I would say that it's a company you've probably never heard of called uh, Hik Vision, H-I-K Vision. Small Chinese company. They're the world's biggest makers of surveillance cameras. So that's, I mean, it's one of the world's big. And for digital surveillance cameras, they're the biggest player. You've never heard of them, but if you are walking around on the street, it's very likely their cameras came from them. Uh, they bootstrapped their way into this capability. Uh, they're moving into different areas and directions. Uh, uh, just for full disclosure, my company covers it as an investment opportunity. I don't cover it. One of my colleagues likes it a lot. Uh, but all in, basically, it's a very interesting company that's come out of nowhere, uh, uh, quote-unquote. Uh, but they've built uh, uh, a presence by taking advantage of, of, of the need for surveillance cameras and developing a low-cost product that works really well uh, and that fits the, the, the end market needs. Now they're doing things like industrial vision or uh, industrial automation where they take uh, you know, image recognition and other more sophisticated techniques and applying them to other verticals. And that's, that's pretty, you know, pretty capable. That's amazing. People ought to learn more about them. Let's just look ahead 10, 20 years. Are, you know, you've described a China which uh, is very entrepreneurial self-made companies using their manufacturing prowess to improve step-by-step, step, uh, competing uh, against others in a, a very rough game where it's, it's not stable, but you're seeing progress over time. But if, if we look ahead and we look at what, you know, the, given the scale of China, are Americans going to someday be sitting on Chinese planes, driving around in Chinese cars, using medical equipment that was designed by Chinese uh, at the most advanced level to address cancer and other diseases, um, their security uh, systems. Uh, is, is, is the 21st century going to end up being a Chinese technology century? So if, if you step back and look at certain technologies that I look at in detail, like robotics or, or displays, these, the U.S. abdicated cap uh, leadership decades ago. Literally, like it's ago. It's all shifted to some of it to Europe, most of it to Asia. And in the case of robotics and displays, the shift was to Japan. In the case of displays, you can see the evolution now it went to, from Japan to Korea to Taiwan, now to China. So it's natural that that transition occurs. And if the U.S. doesn't make any TVs, and they're all made in Asia, and they're more and more of them made, being made in China, eventually we're buying Chinese TVs, Chinese flat panel TVs. You can buy them now. I mean, you, they're, not, they're not widely available in the U.S. They're not 
yet there at the quality level that uh, uh, the display resolution or precision or lifetime that you'd want for a discerning U.S. consumer, but that's going to happen. And why wouldn't you buy uh, a Chinese TV if it's cheaper? They're all assembled there. You know, big, you know, there's a big assembly operation there. But all in that transition is happening regionally in Asia, and the rest of the world is just consuming those products. And so if the share of the production shifts to China and the capability of the Chinese panel makers to make this place is good enough, you will be buying Chinese panels in bigger and bigger quantities over time. That, that, that doesn't change. Now, for autos, uh, they've tried, right? Uh, they have tried a number of times. But if you go back three decades ago, the, the Japanese tried, they tried again, and they eventually got it to work. If you go to back to the, the Koreans tried it, tried it again, now made it work. Uh, you start seeing inroads now. Uh, a company called Fuyao Glass is building the world's biggest glass plant in the U.S. To, for auto glass. So your windshield will be Chinese made, <laughs> effectively, in the U.S. by a Chinese company. So let me, uh, since we're in Washington, we're in the United States, obviously there's a conversation about what to do about Chinese policies, but should the U.S. government take notes from China's approach? Uh, because... A lot of American politicians and government officials and a lot of Americans would like a lot of these things uh, to be made in the United States. Should the U.S. be thinking more about industrial policy, about more in incentives coming from government, about managing competition, creating development zones, uh, some of these techniques which the U.S. for ideological reasons or lobbying reasons uh, or their view that these are inefficient have decided to, to not. Should the U.S. reconsider the approach that it takes towards uh, technology? I mean, it, it's, it's a question of centralized government versus federalists, right? So the idea that uh, in the U.S. you don't see that, it, it never evolved that way. Uh, it's all private industry, state level sometimes. In China, the, 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 the structure of the, of the country allows for that to happen. Even there's a large, large country and, you know, uh, the, the emperor is far away. Still, uh, there's a lot of uh, influence there. I, I think, I think the, the U.S. can do more. Uh, and... Uh, Things like basic research, you know, NIH, NIST, uh, the research centers, uh, funding, you know, supporting R&D infrastructure. I think that's that's really important, and you can't give that up. Uh, now, manufacturing a flat panel TV in the U.S. is a long haul. From here on, it's going to be very, very difficult. But you have the example of a company like Corning that supplies half the world's display glass. They don't make any in the U.S. They make it all abroad, but it's all a U.S. It's all it all it all a cruise to US to a US company that then of course its shareholders come out ahead but all in uh, you know I don't know if you can force a transfer of technology and manufacturing to the US but you can definitely keep ahead and be the leader in in in, in a lot of the components and the things that go into that that's what the Japanese have done the Japanese have built a unassailable niche in components and technologies that the Chinese depend on they, they, they couldn't do anything without them uh, and you know at the same time the products coming out of those uh, uh, that were enabled by these technologies are basically decimated <laughs> Japan's consumer electronics industry, but uh, in exchange, they've actually gained primacy in the supply chain. One final question, and that's about automation. As you mentioned, China is spending a lot on automation, as uh, the U.S. has been, but there's also a big discussion in the U.S. of fear of automation because of the concern that automation translates into fewer jobs. Where do you see uh, 
the U.S. And, and China going in automation, it's possible some people suggest that, in fact, automation might help the, the, the U.S. economy and jobs because the manufacturing of, the, of equipment uh, for factories still would involve a lot of American workers. Do you see the U.S. being able to benefit from automation, or do you think somehow China is going to be able to jump in there given their approach that you've described and, and automations will eventually accrue the benefits mainly to, to China? In automation, the, the, both the U.S. and China are actually facing the same problem, which is effectively the lack of labor, believe it or not. Uh, I read an article in the Wall Street Journal, uh, which I, I agree with completely, that if you want 3% productivity growth, you can't do it with the people. There are not enough people to, to grow that. You cannot... The inputs to to the inputs are uh, labor capital and total, and, the, and and you end up with the residual total factor of productivity. You cannot do it with the current growth rate of of labor in the U.S. unless you have tremendous immigration. The way around that is to improve the capital efficiency to have machines help you. So I think that at, for for at least for a, quite a while, we're going to need machines to get growth. Uh, I know that in the past. We've seen cycles, for example, it was Robert Sola who said, I, I, I see the PC revolution everywhere except in the, in the productivity statistics, that he was early. Eventually that come out, those numbers did come out. So I do think that, that the automation makes labor more productive. Uh, it, it basically uh, augments human capability, uh, allows for higher productivity. And in the end, given you know, demographic trends in both China and the U.S., automation is probably the, one of the ways you can, you can continue growing without having to have population growth. Hey, Alberto, this has been a fantastic, enlightening, even encouraging conversation. I really appreciate you coming to CSIS and spending the day with us. Oh, Thanks thank so you. much. Thank you very much. To learn more about China's technology innovation, check out our new report authored by Scott Kennedy on the Fat Tech Dragon and our companion website, which shares analysis of specific sectors, case studies, and more interviews like this one. It also includes assessments of what competitors like the United States, Europe, Japan, and South Korea could do in response to China's tech innovation focus. Links for the report and the site will be in the show notes. As China's innovation drive continues, here at CSIS, we'll be watching. That's our show. Special thanks to Alberto Moel for sharing his time and insights with us. The audio for this podcast was edited by Liz Mays. This podcast was written and produced by Jeffrey Bean. To learn more, visit our new look, CSIS.org and Kajadasia.com. You can follow our Asia programs on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, RSS, or email on CSIS.org. Stop by our Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative site for a groundbreaking maritime analysis in Asia, now in five languages, and check out our latest Reconnecting Asia feature. Also, be sure to listen to our latest China Power podcast on the One Belt, One Road initiative. I'm Will Colson. Thanks for listening.